The demographics of the world are changing. So there's a time limit on the way the world looks now, right? And I think we're feeling the friction of some of that change. And the politics of the youth are changing. And I think there's always going to be like intergenerational struggle. But what's different this time is we have more democratized access to each other's thoughts. So I think we feel that friction kind of in more pronounced a fashion. So I think if people who look like you and me do nothing, the youth are still going to lead the way. Welcome to the... (laughs) No, 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 I can't do that. Let's try another one. Uh, How about this? (laughs) No, no, that won't work either. Let's try this. get on board with that. Let's roll with it. Welcome to the Begin the Begin podcast. My name is Jeff Hillemeyer, and I'm on a mission to find out what makes people tick. Not just anyone, people who are making a profound impact on the world. I want to dig into their origin story and get to the root of why and how they do what they do. I hope you are as inspired coming out of these conversations as I am. Let's get into it. All right, guys, I've been looking forward to this podcast episode for quite some time. Kyle Stapleton is one of those people that everybody loves. He's funny and he's got great energy, but I think people really gravitate toward him because of his heart. He's the epitome of why I started this podcast, because I really want to know what makes someone like him tick. I'm pretty sure after listening to this, you're going to want to be friends with him, too. So let's get into it. So I am really excited about today's episode because I am getting to to chat with um, someone that um, I guess we've known each other for a couple of years. I feel like I should have known this guy for way longer than that because we're we're so similar in so many ways. Kyle, tell everybody who you are and what you do. Hi, buddy. I'm Kyle Stapleton. My day job is leading culture and employee experience at the studios at formerly Turner, now Warner Media. Um, which encompasses the legacy brands of Turner, HBO, and Warner Brothers. Uh, so we're right in the middle of Midtown Atlanta. You've probably driven by my my office that I haven't seen since March a thousand times mm-hmm. on the connector. Um, but I'm also a native ATLian. I was born at George Baptist on Boulevard. I went to Georgia State two times over. Um, actively involved in the community, especially in the arts and creative community. My wife is a visual artist. I uh, was born here. I'm going to die here. Um, I'm wearing an Atlanta Influences Everything shirt. I have an Andre 3000 <laughs> photo <laughs> by Gavin Guidry behind me. I, I couldn't rep any harder if I possibly tried. Um, so, uh, you know, I'm, I'm all about the city and sense of place and, and making meaning. Um, and I get to be creative and wear t-shirts for a living. And that's not a bad way to live. No, that's pretty good. Um, before I dive deep into your past, culture and experience, t- tell me sort of what the, what the role means, though, that you do at uh, Warner Media. I think the easiest way to describe it is design thinking for people. Um, so it's, it's non-HR people operations. We sit outside of HR, and the goal is to 
design experiments and processes that bring out more of the good things about work and try to eliminate as many of the bad obstacles, especially in a job like ours where the sands are shifting, but the fundamental truth is always there that like people love what they do. People, people made an insane lifestyle choice to work in 24 hour media um, because they love it and they get to express themselves. So like, how do we keep them as close to the core of that activity as possible and remove as many of the like structural business industry barriers? Um, so it's a lot of, it's a lot of listening and it's just being involved in like really what people's day to day is like and how we can help them in the short term and how we can plan for a better long term. Did you invent that job or something? How did that happen? Somebody much smarter than me invented the the field. Uh, you know, it's been a long time coming. There, There's a guy, there are a lot of really smart people in this kind of interdisciplinary, like employee experience kind of design thinking space. Um, they're my favorite people to follow on the internet because they're, they're profound thinkers. And I think they're kids that wanted to be like liberal arts sociologist kids and then didn't want to be poor. So they are kind of like living in two worlds all the time. So I appreciate that. There's this guy, Lars Schmidt, who is like actively trying to disabuse people of the future of work term. Cause he's like, the future is here. And there's that old phrase that the future is already here. It's just not evenly distributed. Mm. Like that, that's as fundamental a human truth as I think we're operating with in the world of work right now. So I think the phenomenology of rethinking uh, like the employer employee contract started in Silicon Valley where like knowledge work really took off. And so you saw things like the Netflix culture deck um, yeah. and some of the really inventive stuff they were doing there. And obviously like Google and Laszlo Bach kind of invented the org stack around people ops and, and rethinking the way that that looks within an org structure. Um, but my job was created by, I mean, you know me well, Jeff, you know, I've worked for some incredible leaders over the years, but like Laura Dames is the best leader that I've ever worked for. She, she worked right alongside a, as an operations and marketing chief to Steve Coonan, who now runs the Hawks um, at TBS and TNT and is generally regarded as like one of the, the best respected leaders at Techwood in Atlanta. And, and I see why she's, she's incredible and visionary and, has a knack for building and sustaining high performance teams. And um, she knew when she took over the studios group from, from coming from the network side, she had a vision for what that would look like. And basically her mandate was like, you got to rethink the way that this works for the ground from the ground up, because we've kind of painted it in a corner. Um, so she was like, well, that's total change management and cultural transformation. And that's a business outcome that needs business resources put behind it. So she engineered this job description. Um, it was really like single-handedly her vision as, as part of re-engineering this org. Um, and I was in a really privileged position. I was in lead Atlanta at the time. And one of my classmates, Sydney Langdon, um, who is still in CSR at Warner Media, hipped me to the fact that this position existed. And, and I only knew to like be talking about this because of um, this one really pivotal conversation I had with Doug Shipman. He had just left the center and I think it was right before his stint at Bright House. And so he was in a career transition. I've always really admired him and considered him a mentor. And Doug is a really consultative thinker. You can talk for 30 minutes and he'll give you, you give him 10,000 words, he'll give you 10 words and they're like a million dollars worth of words. Um, and he was like, you work at a PR place, just do your own PR, make the brand association between Kyle Stapleton and culture so that when the moment arrives that there's a culture job open, you're the first person somebody thinks of. 
And that's exactly what happened. Like I was just telling everybody I knew about this like school of thought and how I wanted to go into like transforming work and making it not suck. And, um, was going through like personal revelations around that. And, um, and Sydney sent me this job description. She had a newborn. So she sent it at like midnight on a Tuesday. And I had my little, like, here, here are the things that aren't my real job, but that I've been doing in my jobs resume so that I was like remotely prepared to have a culture conversation. Um, and then like three weeks later in a series of whirlwind interviews, I had a job offer from Turner and that was four years ago in November. And it's been nonstop inside and outside the walls ever since. That's such an amazing piece of advice. Um, is that advice you give to let's call it young people? Like, you know, if there's something you want to do and something you're passionate about at your company, you know, do the PR thing. And so when someone goes, Oh, we need someone in that role, they think of you. I, absolutely. I, I think it's all about subject matter expertise. And I know it can get into that uh, really like commoditized place of thought leadership. Um, and, and so you want to make sure it's coming from a place of like, this is the stuff that keeps you up at night and you are really passionate about it and not just trying to like sell a product behind it. There's a huge difference there. Um, but yeah, absolutely. I think everyone everyone should know inside and outside of the thing that you get paid to do, that this is the thing that you care about. And and that's what like living in your purpose and being aligned. When people talk about that kind of stuff, it's like people should be able to tag two or three kind of like metadata keywords to Kyle or to Jeff. Yeah. Do do you have a personal purpose statement? Like do you have a, or do you just have some words? I, I say it, I say it a number of different ways, kind of depending on the audience. I was a, I was a punk rock kid, so I, I tend to frame it in pretty like vulgar, anti-authoritarian terms if we're talking about it over beers. But really, man, the, the bottom line is like we we live in one of the most kind of important places in the world for human rights, and we have such such a privilege to be born in the shadow of Dr. King and, and kind of the most important social movement in the history of this country and arguably the world. Um, and the idea of beloved community and dispelling the three evils and the things that Dr. King was talking about at the end of his life are like really, really to me, it, it boils down to building beloved community. I, I don't think there's any more important or, or noble or urgent a purpose than, um, you know, than to live together in peace and harmony. And, and that's a big abstract, complex, multi-layered historical thing that you can, you can scale up and, and get overwhelmed by the complexity of, but it really starts with, with being a good neighbor. I mean, I, there was an Atlanta influences everything event called storyboard with Dr. Joyce and killer Mike at general assembly where you and I first met. And I, I raised my hand and I asked, you know, like how do we ensure with all the changes that are happening in the city that the next killer Mike or TI or Donald Glover doesn't have to go somewhere else. Like how can they stay totally homegrown? Like how do we keep them in the pipeline here? Because this place is special and different and we know it, even if we don't know how to articulate or protect it just yet. And he said, it starts with being a neighbor, man. It just, it starts with your neighborhood and your NPU and knowing the people that live around you and you know, whether they've been here a long time or not a long time and just, He's like, you, you can, you can think globally, but you absolutely have to act locally. It starts, it starts with being a neighbor. And that's, that to me is what building beloved community is all about. 
How are you bringing that to your role at Warner Media? The idea of neighbor, um, blessed community, you know, beloved community. Um, how are you, or are you not? Are you sort of, you know, more just focused on the job? Maybe affect people by who you are, but are you bringing any of that to the role? It's a great question. Um, you know, I think in 2020, I'm doing it more urgently than mm -hmm. than I ever kind of felt permission to, as much as I've ever felt like I needed permission to do anything. Um, so we have a really great, we, we have two really great ingredients that were there a long time before I came along, right? I wouldn't do culture work at just any organization because frankly, I don't think a lot of the organizations in kind of capitalism need to exist. Like they, they got to have a purpose or they should go away. Um, but that's, that's kind of its own rabbit hole. Um, we had this internal mantra of shape culture here, right? We, we not only are telling stories, but we're telling stories. Uh, we're empowering people who haven't gotten their stories told to tell their stories. I think HBO is the best platform in the world for doing that kind of work. Um, and certainly in like the digital space and, and some of these like kind of niche places, you see lots of great things that you want to try to amplify. Right. So the core product that we offer, um, is intended to do like world changing work if we're doing it right, if we're doing it intentionally. Secondly, in the house that Ted built, Ted Turner in Atlanta, there is a, a big cultural holdover of relationships are king. The, the people are the main ingredient. People are special and they're creative and they work their tails off. And that's the most valuable currency that we have at this place. And a lot of organizations feel that way, but in an organization where you're grinding really, really, really hard and you're up against constant and seismic change of the variety that our industry has seen for the past five years, people are the only thing that are going to keep you in it, right? And, and, and not just liking being around them, but also being inspired by their own individual craft, right? So I, I think a lot of it looks like just helping people stay connected to those elements we get to do really good work that has a really important purpose in the world because people have all the choice in the world with how to spend their time and they still choose to do things that are going to inspire them and bring them closer to other people and feel seen and validated in the world, right? So it's a huge responsibility and privilege that we have with the creative work that we do. Um, and two is we get to do it around the best people in the industry, frankly. Like I, I would die on that hill. The best people in the industry work at, at Warner Media. It's absolutely incredible, bar none. Um, and, and so there's a lot of elements in beloved, of beloved community in that. Um, but you know, it's, it's taken a sharper turn into just speaking truth to power around power structures of race and gender and class. Um, and, and we're having conversations that frankly, when I was a college punk rock kid, I, I never would have thought I'd be having and, and helping leaders lead at work but I'm really inspired by it. I mean, it's like, I'm, I'm kind of getting paid to be an activist a little bit. Right. So I, I feel like all of the, all of the kind of anti-authoritarian blow it up from the inside type of plans that I made when I was like 18 to 20, I get to do out in the full daylight now because everybody knows the ways that the old world won't work anymore. Right. The, the pandemic illuminated that before we even started having the anti-racist conversations. Right. It's like, we've done 10 years of innovation in six months um and, and we can't go back like we can't put a lid back on that box so the companies that are going to succeed in 10 years are the ones that 
do just rip off the Band-Aid and move into the new world, but they also do it in a really human way that they, that they don't leave people behind, right? So for us, that looks like being even more intentional than ever before about the future of people that are going to work at our company and how do we start planting those seeds now for future storytellers. And we were going down that road before, but I think like everybody's more galvanized around that type of work, like equity, access to equity, planning for a more equitable and just future and, and using vocabulary like that, which is really exciting. It was very, it was a very like soft and kind of corporate and gated community e uh, until six months ago. And we've blown the lid off of that. And I, I hope we never go back. How, how do you, um, this is, this is the thing that, uh, I worry about, um, in terms of the progress that can be made from, uh, the eye opening that has happened. Um, you know, I'll say to white America over the last six months. Yep. Um, you know, I, I was listening to a, um, a pastor talking and, um, she said that, uh, you know, it's, it's not what you do in the next three weeks. It's not what you do in the next three months. It's what are you doing in the next three years? Like, are you still committed to this? Because the reality is for, you know, white, especially white men like you and I, white straight men, let's go there. Um, it's so easy to go back to this world where we're not experiencing any of these things. We're not being prejudiced against. We're not being hurt by it. And so, you know, there's, there's passion around it right now. It's clearly something, you know, you and I connected over this years ago. So like, it's something that we've been thinking about, but like, how do you, without there needing to be constantly black men murdered in the street, how do we hold on to that and make sure people remember that there's still so much work to be done? So let's assume very worst case scenario, right? The people in power, mostly older people, mostly cis white male people go back to doing nothing and, and they get comfortable again. Um, a couple of truths will remain true. The demographics of the world are changing. So there's a time limit on the way the world looks now, right? And I think we're feeling the friction of some of that change. Like the demographics of the country are changing and the politics of the youth are changing, right? And I think there's always gonna be like intergenerational struggle, but what's different this time is we have more democratized access to each other's thoughts. So I think we feel that friction kind of more in more pronounced a fashion. Um, So I think if people who look like you and me do nothing, the youth are still going to lead the way. I, I really believe that. I, I think it's going to get better no matter what, because I believe in the youth. Um, having said that, we would do ourselves a service to accelerate it greatly um, if, if we continue to have the conversation about how all these things we care about are related, right? And that's that's where when you, when you talk about beloved community, Dr. King and lots of other people, but Dr. King spelled all these things out about how the three evils were all, were all related, right? So capitalism and our use of resources are related to militarism and our kind of like male ego-driven domination of each other politically are related to racism and our hatred and fear of our neighbors. All of those things add up to, um, we see cycles down in the economy when we try to be r- really like selfish and small-minded ideologically. Um, we're certainly seeing the impact on the planet. I mean, there are something like 70,000 acres of the West burning currently because of preventable climate crises. Um, and we see kind of the fraught nature of some of our relationships abroad. So even if you're a pure 
ruthless dollars and cents expel, Excel spreadsheet capitalists, like this will affect your kids and grandkids, right? So that's a long way of answering that. I, I think it's just about continuing to have the conversation and finding the right button to push person to person, right? So if you're somebody who cares even a little, you got to keep having the conversations, you got to keep everybody around you uncomfortable, and you can't let up, right? And if you're somebody that hasn't really been moved to action yet, you just need to know that more of that's coming for you. Right. Yeah. Um, I'm reading this, uh, this incredible book by Layla Saad, me and white supremacy. Um, and she mentioned that um, it's, there are three components of the work. It is truth is the first one, right? You got to start from a true place um, about your own role and responsibility in, in these systems. Um, you have to bring your full love, right? You have to, assume that the human truth that means the most to you is that something beyond yourself is what matters the most in the world. Um, and, and most importantly, to your point, it's commitment work, right? It's, it's the shade tree problem. You're going to plant a seed and you're never going to get to enjoy the shade of that tree. And that's okay. That's the, that's the best and most noble thing that you can do with your time on this earth is to commit to things that are going to outlive you in a crazy way, right? For, for dozens and hundreds of years. And that's not like building an empire like the Murdochs, right? I think like that idea of legacy has been totally perverted. Um, but really the, the best work that you can do is the stuff that your kids and grandkids and their friends and their neighbors are going to benefit from, right? That's, that's what your community looks like. I love it. Well, um, you may have an answer to this. I'm going to circle back to it, but I'm going to give you a heads up so your brain can start getting ready for it. I'm going to ask you, when it's all said and done, what trees do you want to have planted? All right. So so keep that in mind. Uh, where'd you go to high school? I went to Fayette County High School. I was like a four, fourth or fifth generation Fayette County High School grad on the south side of town. My dad was an army brat, um, born on a base in Heidelberg, and he wound up in Columbus, Georgia, and then in Jonesboro, Georgia. So my, my parents have been on the south side for many, many years. They're still on the south side of Atlanta. And then once I, once I moved to ITP for school, that was kind of it. I was like, I could, I could go to shows, all the art kids and skaters and weirdos were in town and there were no Applebee's anywhere. So like that, that was kind of it for me. Nice. I love it. Uh, you you seem like a vortex kind of guy. I just had the vortex for the first time in a minute the other night. We're like right by little five. We're, we're in Edgewood. Yeah. Um, and we hadn't been in, in a hot minute and man, I, it was so good. It's like, Oh, mm. why, why don't I do this more? I'm I'm an EAV loyalist. Oh, are you? So, yeah, those were our stomping grounds, like in our 20s, and so I still love the flat. I I'll be at the Earl the first time there's a show back. I don't care if it's like one man acoustic guitar crap. I'm I will be there. I just, I miss live music so much. You'll be there. So then you then you stayed in in town to go to Georgia State. You said multiple times. You you've never lived outside of Atlanta. Uh, never outside of the metro area. No. The, the more places that I travel, um, I feel like this is the only place that I make sense. It's kind of the unique combination of factors. There, there was a band that my buddies and I loved out of Birmingham, um, kind of like a hillbilly band called Maylene and the Sons of Disaster. And he had a line that's always stuck with me, Dallas Taylor. He said, I've covered this country far and wide, but I'll always be a son of the South. And that's how I feel about Atlanta. I was like, I love every, I love it everywhere. 
you know, there, there are all kinds of places that I love being and spending time. I love LA. I love Southern California. I'd like Joshua tree. Yucca Valley is one of my favorite places in the country, but my people are here. My soul's here. My work's here. You know, it's the, it's the only place that makes sense. There's a lot of work to be done here. There's it's a, a lot place. of work to be done here. Yeah. But, but by the same token, uh, I think there is, uh, there's opportunity here that there isn't other places, right? Like the Atlanta can be an incubator in ways that other places can't. Mm-hmm. Well, yes. And, and I'm, and I'm curious cause, um, I grew up in Atlanta. I went to Stone Mountain high school. Um, I went out of town for college, but came right back. Um, but I didn't grow up, um, understanding or thinking about social justice as an example. It wasn't really discussed, um, uh, with my friends. It wasn't discussed at my house. Um, and, and it took me going through leadership Atlanta. I know you, you went through lead yeah. to really start to change who I was and, and what was important to me. Um, and I'm curious though, cause it sounds like earlier in your life, this, this sort of revelation, this started to happen. Tell, tell me how you became somebody who isn't solely focused on what's going to move him and his family forward. Um, and, uh, seeks to understand the the plight of others and, and and is committed to making change in that area. Well, you probably won't be surprised to know that it started with great parents. Um, you know, my my parents were and are the the greatest parents in the world. Um, I'm I'm I look a lot like my dad, but biologically on the inside, I'm a lot like my mom. Um, she's a very outspoken, tell it like it is type of person always has been. She's, she's, whether she would frame it this way or not, she's totally fearless about standing up to bullies and, um, she's relentless in her fight for the underdog. And I just saw time after time growing up where she like, she really walked the walk and she would see the kid, like she would come, she was very active at my school growing up. And she would see the kid sitting alone in the lunchroom or like the kid that didn't have a lunch. And um, she would commit to bringing that kid lunch every day for a month um, and just went so far above and beyond the, the duty of care as a friend and a parent and a neighbor always. Right. I mean, like to the kind of to the point of self-sacrifice, which she and I have talked a lot about, but um, that example was set for me consistently and loudly and clearly my whole life, right? And my mom wa- was a stay-at-home mom. And so I got tons of exposure to what like kind of doing the work in your community looked like, even though my mom would just, it's just like a total normal course of your day to my mom. Like she, she wouldn't consider herself like an activist or a community organizer or anything like that, but she was totally all of those things, right? So I had that kind of like fundamental core and then I went to Georgia State, which is one of the most diverse institutions in the whole country and, and in the world. And I'm exposed to all these cultures that, you know, I knew little about or I had preconceived notions about or I didn't even know existed, frankly. And like people from countries I'd never heard of. And um, you're, you're bound to have lots of really interesting conversations and forge unusual friendships in a world like that. And you see the plights of people's lives that have had a different combination of circumstances that have gotten them to the same place. And you're like, Oh my God. Wow. You know, so I, I'm already like 
six foot four Aries Irishman, I'm like already kind of preconceived, predisposed to fight for stuff. And that, then you see all these different things and you start to get radicalized a little bit, like for lack of a better word. And you just, you fall in love with these people and these stories and these people you meet and these things that you learn. And once you're exposed, you can kind of never go back. Right. So just, it really all comes from like my, my parents' passion for people and for knowing that you got to roll up your sleeves and like be, be the part of your community that you want to see. Like you got to be that shining light because for better or worse, a lot of people just won't necessarily. And that's okay. That's not, you know, that's why the world needs leaders. It's everybody's not everybody's deal. Um, but I think a lot, I think it was always there and my vocabulary for it started surprising me over time. I would start saying things out loud that it was like, Oh, I, I feel differently about this than I thought it did. You know, like my instincts kind of started sharpening around it. And so it didn't look like activism or racial justice work or like cultural, you know, activism or grassroots work. But you start to ask the questions, like all this work ladders up to the big questions about like, why is life the way that it is? How can we make life better? Um, and the more history you learn and all, all of these people that have laid all of this great groundwork over the years, you you kind of got to honor that work by like using the language, using the frameworks and fighting for real measurable outcomes like policy, um, you know, like quality of life metrics. And and to a certain degree, like if, if you care about this stuff, you got to be like kind of a meaning of life specialist, right? You can tackle it from a very small prescriptive place or you can be like me where you're just a guy sitting on his back patio every Friday night thinking about why the world is the way that it is and how to make it better and, and how we got here and what it's going to be like when we're gone. So parent, I love the the idea that you had that growing up. Um, and as you uh, shared with me, you've got got a special someone coming to your house later this year. I do. I have a baby girl on the way in late December. I'm very, very excited. Very excited to be raising a little freedom fighter. There you go. There you go. Well, it's funny because when I, when I get asked like, um, you know, about parenting or how I'm trying to raise my kids, I mean, the, the thing before anything else that I want my kids to be is, is certainly kind, but, but to have empathy because mm-hmm. they're going to grow up super privileged. I mean, way more privileged than I, than I grew up. Um, but you know, and I just really want them to care about others. And so, you know, I, I'm intentional about making sure that that they're exposed to things and that they're seeing things and that there's diversity in their lives. And um, I imagine that's going to be a similar thing for you, considering you grew up with sort of your your parents leading that way. I, I I'm going to struggle to remember the exact four things, but I first had this conversation a few years ago at the Lead Atlanta retreat with Kareem Sharif, um, who's like a, a brilliant dude from around town. Um, and he has young kids and he and I were talking about values and and we always talked about kindness is one, uh, we want our kid to be tough, you know, cause resilience is so important and, and we don't want to, we don't want to fail to account for the fact that like, there's going to be a, a world beyond us for our daughter and more than anything, she's got to be like genetically, if she's anything like me or her mom, she's going to be pretty strong headed. So we want to like hone that instinct in the right ways. Um, 
We also want her to be curious, like curiosity and learning are, are kind of the most important shared value between my wife and I. And I think that's the, the spark that's kept our relationship so alive is just shared love of the world and learning new things and, and exposure and, and all the creative inspiration that that brings. Um, so those are really, those are really the big three. And then the fourth one, I think probably has something to do with like work ethic. Just like, don't, don't do nothing. Um, but that, you know, that's some shade of the values of how we were both raised. And, and I think coming from the world that I've come from and that, and that you have as, as a business owner and somebody who's like built his organization really intentionally, that types of, that type of conversation around like being really values driven and saying that this is the culture of our home and our, and the Stapleton organization. This is what it means to be a Stapleton. Like having a vocabulary to have that conversation has been really, really helpful and has gotten me really excited about, about being a dad and about, you know, doing the family thing with the person that I'm doing it with. I love that. I love that. Um, okay. So we met, um, at, yes, it was at, um, general assembly. It was, I think, I think it's been three years now. If not yeah, I think so. Um, we both, we both spoke at, at an event or something put on by dagger. Um, we met through Maggie O'Connor. Incredible. Yeah. I miss her being in Atlanta very much, but I'm glad she's doing well in Chattanooga. She like broke her hand or something. She, she just got those stitches out from her finger. She's a, She's tough. Man. It was she was longboarding immediately with her cast and stuff. Yeah, she's she's like, so yeah, rad. She's she's like my favorite people are what I call Iggy Pop people. Like, there's definitely only one of them, and like the combination of factors, it's Maggie O'Connor is like so Iggy Pop. There's there's nobody like her in this world, and I love her so much. And a super talented musician. Super talented musician. Very smart human. A great person to have these kinds of conversations with. Right. Like, she was kind of my first partner in crime with culture conversations when I first got this gig. I don't, I don't remember who introduced me to Maggie originally, but we were fast friends. We, we met and grabbed a bite of lunch in Midtown and, and that was kind of it. Like we were forever bonded. It was uh, Maggie and then Ann Collins, who was director of employee experience at MailChimp at the time. Um, and it's kind of off doing her own thing now, but like th- those are my first two people in my like culture support group. Um, and then that circle quickly expanded starting with really with that event. Like that, that was one of the earliest like culture conversations and gatherings I remember happening yeah. in, in the city. Uh, and it was really exciting because like people were really hungry for that stuff and it was great. Yeah, it was great. What's interesting about that is I first met Maggie years before that at that same place at general assembly, the, I think it was the very first 48 and 48 event I put on. Um, she showed up to volunteer, but I think she showed up like early. And so I was just like, well, yeah, I guess you can help me set up tables. And, stuff. <laughs> and then like after hours of her helping, I we were talking and, and she didn't, I think she was in between jobs or something. And I was like, well, 48 and 48 could use some part-time help. So she signed on 48 and 48. She did a little dragon army work and then I introduced her to dagger and then she worked there. So yeah, but we met through volunteering, which I think is so perfect for, for Maggie. And it's been, that's very, very one of one. It's very Maggie that like she showed up super early, um, (laughs) which I love, but two, I 48 and 48 is such a cool, cool thing. That's 
five five years old now. Is it older than that? Yeah, that's right. This is this is our sixth year. Yeah, that's wild, man. I remember the first one. And I remember being like, "That's a really cool concept," and that was before I even knew you. So I'm glad. I'm very glad that that's still going on. I'm glad to see that that has scaled because just that that kind of that digital presence thing is such a key component and a, and a skill set that a lot of those organizations don't get access to. So it's great. Well, I appreciate that. Yeah. Well, and you know what most people don't realize is the real purpose of 48 and 48 is to unlock marketing and technology volunteerism within people. Because that first event, I thought 48 and 48 existed to help build websites for nonprofits. Yeah. It was the people like Maggie. It was the volunteers that like, there were some volunteers that worked all weekend. And on that last, on that Sunday afternoon came up that very first one and said, Hey, uh, can I go ahead and just put my name on the list for next year? I don't want to miss out. And at first I was like, next year, I guess (laughs) I got to do this again, man. I got to get a beer first. But then the idea that like, it wasn't like skip a beat and take a breath. It was like, uh, I'm exhausted, but please make sure I don't miss out on this. And I realized that most people don't get a chance to use their skills and their superpower to do good in the world. And that that's what 48 and 48 was allowing. So, um, so that leads me to my sort of final question, because that is a way that I am, um, living into my purpose. Uh, my purpose is to have an outsized positive impact on the world. And so I look at a 48 and 48 and it's like, yes, I could, you and I could build a website for a nonprofit and that would be helpful, but I think I can have an outsized impact by, uh, getting people who normally wouldn't be volunteering and getting them into a place where it's a passion for them and they're infecting the people around them. And then a lot of good can be done. Right. So as you think about, you know, the things that you talked to me about today in terms of, um, beloved community, being a good neighbor, the things that really drive you. And then you think about the impact that you want to make the trees that you want to plant to use your words. What are some of the things you do want to look back and say, I helped make that happen and it is making the world a better place. So I mentioned Atlanta being the perfect incubator. Um, you know, we're, we're having this anti-racism conversation and, and we're, we're rectifying our relationships specifically with black Americans throughout the history of this country. Right. And Atlanta for me, for many people, whether you agree with this based on your own POV or not listener, um, Atlanta is pretty synonymous with being a black city, right? And for reasons not the least of which is is Dr. King and John Lewis and so many other people who were involved with that movement. Um, so to me, Atlanta feels like an an incubator. I, I like that word because I think we're a city that's so galvanized by ideas. Like I, I, exporting ideas is really big, seismic, world changing ideas is really the currency of Atlanta. You look at uh, you look at an MLK, you look at a Maynard Jackson, you look at a Ted Turner, you look at an outcast, you look at quality control and Migos, right? You look at Jasmine Crow and Gooder. Um, the, like we don't just go for it. We, we are trying to do things. We're, we're trying to like export ideas and culture and way of being and living that, that influence and that shake up the world. Right. That's, and there are, I think a lot of factors that play into that, but Specifically, I think if we can incubate a model for black success and a black middle and upper class here, it can, it can be exported anywhere, right? Like kind of like the community quarterback model on steroids, right? With, with a tip of the cap to my good friend, Danny Shoy and the East Lake Foundation and purpose built communities and the great work they've done in that community, right? I, I think especially as we're in like, 
in remote life and people are thinking about the, the meaning of a place and where they live and the idea of like geography versus kind of the symbolism of a, of a neighborhood or a city or a community. Um, we we're at a juncture where I think we have to ask really critical connect questions about what Atlanta is, what it means, what it can offer, what it can be. And I think that idea of, of black success of like truly living up to the moniker of being a black Mecca rather than a myth um, is some of the most important work that we can be doing to heal this country. And um, I want to actively be a part of, of that work. Right. So um, having, having made a dent or experienced some successes that we can share that the people really like on the front lines doing the work, the the Bain Joiners, the Jewel Burks, the Jasmine Crows, the Ryan Wilsons, um, that, that those people had their ideas exported and replicated. Um, and then kind of to my 1B point that they are fairly recognized and compensated for that work, right? So a lot of culture work um, is exported without people paying the ad valorem tax, right? Atlanta Influences Everything was started because we see soccer players in France doing the dab without kind of an acknowledgement of how much popular culture is really black culture and how much black culture has its epicenter and its origin in Atlanta. Right. So that's kind of my huge thesis is like Atlanta and creativity and blackness and our relationship with all of those things can really be rectified in this incubator model. So in as much as anybody knows me or cares who I am or, or like comes to my funeral or whatever, those are the things that I w- want them to know, at least that I cared very deeply about. And I gave my life to, right. It's that this was a place where we, we helped create a space or we, we honored and sustained and protected a place where you, you could express yourself and, you know, like Andre 3000, you could be whoever you wanted to be and, and let your freak flag fly. And this was the place from which all funky things came. And, you know, in a, in a young and misguided country, we were a place that got it more right than other places. And I think the, you know, the execution of that down the stretch looks like, I don't want to run for office, but I want to support people who do. I want to be involved from the the NPU all the way up to the mayoral and, and govern, governor level. Um, I know federal politics play a role because of mostly funding and stuff like that. But like, I, I'd rather be the person that cares about local and can kind of bridge big federal ideas with, with small, deep state and community level impact. Um, so I'm always going to be involved in politics and like friends with city council people and supporting people in races and advocating for policy and helping educate my friends. And most importantly, like raising and directing dollars and, um, kind of doing the, kind of doing the Ann Kramer model, our good friend, Ann Kramer, where she just kind of tries to appear everywhere where people she loves are and they're ideologically aligned with the the kind of outcomes that she wants, right? Like Anne is a champion for education and young people being the future and like that being the the path forward and, and out of the generational cycle of poverty. And and everything in Anne's life kind of aligns around loosely around those things. You see her show up a lot of different places, but mostly they're aligned around that. I, I want to do kind of the same thing around like creative culture and artists and people who work in food service, like anybody around a craft who do the things that 
shape a life worth living, the things that we all love and value and spend our free time doing, like those are the people that I want to show up for and help and, and battle for against like big corporate evil self-interested forces. So I'm going to continue punk rocking in the free world um, in this little, this little neighborhood of ours. And I'm going to continue to try to do it for the culture, so to speak. Dude. I love that so much. That was that was so well said. And I just, you know, I, every time we talk, I can't help but think like, I, I hope there's more and more of, you know, Kyle Stapleton's out there and that's what this city needs. That's what this country needs. That's what this world needs. I love that you're doing it inside of a huge company. I mean, that's, that's, uh, you know, I think that's an advantage um, because that's not being done inside of corporate quite as much, right? Yeah, you're not running for for office. You're inside of the behemoth. And so you can affect change that way. Um, so listen, I can't thank you enough for having this conversation. Um, I'm ready to help in any way as I always have been. I know we're working on a on something cool that we'll announce pretty soon here. Um, but you've inspired me. You've given me more hope. I've been sort of down lately about the state of things and uh, I'm feeling hopeful and I'm feeling like Atlanta is the place to do it. And um, I, I, I want to, one more thing. I, I do want to say one, thank you very much for having me. I always love getting to have these conversations with you too. It's very easy to despair existentially and I'd be lying. I, I think we wouldn't be human, right? Like surprise, that's consciousness. If you're, if you're awake right now, you should be angry. Um, but I read this great tweet where somebody was was trying to give hope to a person facing existential despair. They were like, the original tweet was, um, you know, the literal Amazon's on fire. How am I supposed to write an article about student loans? And the guy was like, I think about this every day. Um, but there's a teaching of the prophet Muhammad where he says, if the end of the world happens upon you when you have a sap, if you have a sapling in your hand, finish planning it first. So like, no matter, no matter what the state of the world is, just, just do the work. Like that, that's all, that's all we can do. Just plant the sapling, man. Like we, we, you and I are very fortunate to have, I think multiple saplings in our hands and it's crazy out there, but we, we still have a job to do on our farm. I, I'm going to end on that because that was awesome. I hadn't heard that before. Uh, thank you, buddy. It was great to see you. Thanks as always. Wow, you made it to the end of the podcast. I didn't think people did that anymore. Well, since I still have you, I'd love for you to do two things. First, subscribe to this podcast on whatever platform you're listening on. That way you'll be alerted as soon as I post my next one. And second, I'd love for you to subscribe to my email newsletter. I send out an email every week or two, and it's really where I share my more personal thoughts and ideas. Plus, I give stuff away sometimes. You can find the sign up at my blog, jeffhillemeyer.com, and I really do appreciate you listening. <laughs>